0: My name is Shirley May, and this is Complacency is the Death of Good Theater. For those of you who don't know me, I'm an artist based in Louisiana. My main goal is to be a director for theater, but there have been some interesting paths along the way. Between the COVID-19 pandemic shutting down theater across many countries and roadblocks that I'm going to talk about in this first episode of the podcast, I haven't made any leeway in my career path of becoming a director. Now, before I dive into all that, I want to take some time to explain the name of the podcast. Where did it come from? What does it even mean? And I just want to say, like many other artists, I've been able to watch the world grow with leaps and bounds as technology and society has changed. Theater is no exception to this rule. And I actually came up with this mantra while I was in college— Myself and many other students at my university would deal with so much pushback when we would ask for solutions to the fact that we weren't getting enough experience. Many students would go through their entire undergraduate career without getting adequate knowledge of how show production worked and how it looked in the real world. We were met with the attitude from governing forces within our university that we didn't know what we were talking about, that this is what everyone has to go through, and that unpaid theater experience is a hot commodity. There was no growth within our department for people who were actually pursuing theater as a career, and many people would often be overlooked for spots getting the knowledge and experience they desperately needed. I took it upon myself to take a stand and write an email to our technical director about the issue with the hopes that they would start looking at how the department could change for the better in ways that would help students grow. At the end of the email, I signed it with a dramatic, complacency is the death of good theater. And that's true. And as far as I've seen, they haven't changed. At the end of my degree last year, I was left with a whole pile of student debt and not enough experience to get even unpaid experience as an aspiring director. But this podcast is not just about me. It's about a whole slew and generation of theater and visual artists who are struggling to get themselves out there. So here's what we're going to be discussing first. Why is theater so important to society? Alright, so beyond even the historical context of theater being something that was founded in religion, that turned into a thing of entertainment that we used to take a look at society, Performing arts is an important part of expression and humanity. It promotes literacy, it promotes social discourse and dialogue and potential social change. It is always evolving. Theater was created as a communal experience to remind humans that they weren't experiencing the insanity that is the possibility that we exist alone. It creates tools for people who don't know how to express themselves to find ways to express themselves. It can help people learn to work together. And all in all, theater is a huge part of how humanity works. Even in our day-to-day life, everyone experiences some sort of performance in our culture Um, Almost everyone I know works in some sort of customer service or a service-based position, whether that's retail, whether that's food service, whether it's working in a hotel, in a bank, in real estate. Almost the entire economy depends on some sort of performance via your work. To order some food at a restaurant, there's a certain type of performance to how we experience society because if you let's say you were time-zapped from I don't know, medieval times to current times, and someone put you in a car and went through the drive-thru at McDonald's because I don't want to deal with copyright issues. So let's say you're in the drive-thru at McDonald's and you're in the passenger seat first of all cars second of all this person is speaking into a box why are they speaking into a box um then they go and they pay this person at the window and then they go to the next window and they get their food none of it makes any sense but there is a sort of performance to the entire thing we just understand this performative part of society as something that needs to be done it's not something that you think about But what would it look like if you went to the window and paid and then went to the box where you put your order in and then went to the box where you get your food? Or if you went to a restaurant? Even in different cultures, if you go to a sit-down restaurant, Um, there is complete difference on how you act towards your service people. In some countries, they pay people well enough to where they don't have to rely on tips in order to make a livable wage. In some countries, like the country I live in, you are paid at a very small amount per hour, and then you are expected to earn your wages through a whole performance of making these people happy through your service. So all of that to say that we as a society, whenever we transitioned from a manufacturing society to a service society, took on this new societal weight of everyone having to do some sort of performance in their day-to-day life. But even further than that, um if you exist and you have any sort of illness mental illness physical illness chronic illness invisible illness you probably have gone through a time probably on a day-to-day basis where you are completely aware of yourself in space with other people and you are thinking on whether or not they notice that You're turned a little bit more towards the wall rather than them. And you read somewhere that body language says that if you're facing the core of your body towards someone, it shows that you're interested in what they're saying or whether or not someone's noticing that you're tapping your foot or whether someone is now all of a sudden noticing that you're in your head instead of in the moment experiencing something with other individuals. That can apply to all sorts of situations, not necessarily just anxiety, not necessarily chronic illness, not necessarily mental illness, not necessarily any sort of disabilities. It can be applied across the board as something that we experience as part of performative self. And I think that's something that most people don't really have the vocabulary to put their finger on what exactly it is. But performance of self is how we go through our day-to-day activities and our habits and our work life and our life in general, building relationships with other people and how our performative actions influence that. And so, for instance, when I'm trying to build a relationship with someone, whether it's a friendship, a familial relationship, if it's a romantic relationship, I love feeding people. I have a very, um, I, I really like food. Um, I like giving people food. To me, that's a big sign that I want to form a relationship with you. And so usually, especially with friendships, once I find out what someone's favorite snack is, or if there's like a drink they particularly like, I'll bring them that snack. And It just is part of my performative action of forming relationships. And even then, it doesn't always work, right? And so when you do a performative action in relationship building and it doesn't work, you have to go back and reassess that performative action. Like, okay, what part of this didn't they like? Did they not like that I presented them with this? Did they not like it that I presented them with this while there were other people around? Was my demeanor something that they were not attracted to? All in all, all of this to say, this performative sense of self is part of how theater affects society. Because people train relentlessly in order to a relatable and believable sense of performative self from the other side of a fourth wall type experience in theater. So if you're an audience member and you're watching a theater performance, the more that someone has done that outside of it, the better and more believable it will be inward study of how their character would think and act and be in this moment that you're watching from and society. And that is how theater come together. I think that it's a beautiful thing to be able to experience and to know about. And it goes even deeper than that. Performative action and sense of self goes even deeper into gender identity expression, sexual identity and expression, and just general identity and expression. So I identify as a cisgendered woman, meaning that I identify with the gender that I was assigned at birth. And so, but I don't necessarily always adhere to society's idea of what my gender expression should look like. I often wear men's clothes. I don't have long hair. I actually shaved my head last year. I don't wear dresses very often, but I do like doing my makeup. And so that is a societal affirmation of my gender expression as a performative act. And we see it a lot in acts of masculinity, especially because there's all sorts of harmful acts of masculine gender expression rather than wholesome acts of masculine gender expression. So let me, I'm going to go ahead and break that down for a second. So a harmful expression of masculinity would be a man getting angry and punching a wall. Instead of talking about his feelings. Whereas a wholesome expression of masculinity would be a father affirming a son's or daughter's feelings about, like, how to work on a car. Like, understanding that it's not easy to work on a car. If the father happens to know how to work on a car, he can pass on that knowledge regardless of his children's gender identity and expression. And obviously... The people who are probably listening to this, some of you are already pretty well informed about all of this. But the reason I wanted to go in depth with this is that there is a lot of people who don't understand the performative action of gender identity. And moving forward into sexual identity and how that performative action influences how we build relationships. So I identify as pansexual. And there's lots of different sexual identities. But specifically, I'm gonna break it down like this. If I, as a pansexual cisgendered woman myself, if I were to perform an action in order to try to build a physical relationship with someone who outwardly identifies as masculine, I would adhere to some of the societal standards of femininity. I would try to make myself smaller. I would I would accentuate my more high pitched voice. I would alter the way I move. I would try to make physical contact with them. Whereas if I were to try to make a performative action to attract someone who identifies as female, I would stand up taller. I would make myself look bigger. I would be a firmer, more confident individual. I would take on some of those performative actions that are generally associated with masculinity because some women are into that. I don't know. It's just part of how I was trained to do performative actions to build physical relationships. Just in general of self-identity. I identify as a leader. I enjoy, or rather I find fulfillment in finding solutions to problems. I find fulfillment in making a team work together. I find fulfillment in working smarter, not harder, finding the solutions that work for a long time rather than just for a shorter period of time. And so, whenever I meet with another leadership personality, it all comes down to performative actions of respect. If I am in a conversation with another leadership type individual and they are also giving me perceived performative actions of respect, they're making eye contact with me, they're not talking down to me, they're actively paying attention to what I'm saying, then they're also going to get my perceived performative actions of respect back. However, if I'm in a conversation with another leadership personality, and they are giving me disrespectful performative actions, they are using a tone that indicates that they don't take my experience seriously. They're not making eye contact with me. They're extremely distractible from the situation. I will shut down any acts of performative respect. And that can complicate relationships, especially professional ones. And so it all folds in on itself when it comes to performative action. I took all of this And I broke it all down simply to give examples. I don't even know if any of these examples make sense, but to give examples of how performative action envelops every single part of our day-to-day life because humans have, since the beginning, have striven for expression. We make art, whether it's visual art, whether it's dancing, whether it's physical art and statues, whether it's writing, whether it's, I don't know, the billions of other types of art that are all valid, humans strive to express themselves. And when it comes down to it, the sociological aspects of performative action is the reason why theater has made such a huge mark on history. All right. And that's why I think theater is so important to society. Thank you for sticking around while I go off on a tangent about performative action in day-to-day life. It's something that I find really interesting. And if you have any comments, I would love to hear them. Also, I am definitely interested in going more in depth in the history of theater in society if people are interested in hearing about it. For now, you can find me on Facebook at Shirley Mae Arts. That's Shirley M-A-E Arts. And next time, we'll be talking about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting theater. What are rehearsals looking like? How are people getting back into theater now that it's becoming a little more feasible? And how do we think that the future of theater will be affected by whether or not it's available on streaming services? All right.